Dr. Linda Bluestein is the founder and sole proprietor of Hypermobility MD and the host of the Bendy Bodies podcast. We discuss how to distinguish hypermobility from a hypermobility disorder. We also discuss common non-joint-related pathologies that those with hypermobility connective tissue disorder may have, from POT syndrome to mast cell instability. At the end, we discuss some case presentations that are near and dear to my heart. Dr. Bluestein is a national, international, and invited speaker, is at the forefront of research on pain, hypermobility, and dance medicine. She's written and lectured extensively on the topics of pain neuroscience, chronic pain, and hypermobility disorders. Dr. Bluestein repeatedly receives top reviews from the medical students from her teaching abilities and is a member of the clinical faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin, Central Wisconsin, where she also serves as the course director for the RISHI Healers Art Program. She is a product of the California education system, having gone to undergrad at UC Irvine and med school at UCLA, and then did her anesthesia residency at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Linda Bluestein, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So before we start talking about bendy bodies, let's talk about how an anesthesiologist ended up treating bendy bodies. So how did you get started? How did you make the transition? And how did you set up your practice? So so I actually am a dancer myself by um, by this is how I started out. Like I wanted to be a professional ballet dancer. That was my dream. And my body though had other ideas. I have a bendy body in case probably a number of people already know that by now. So I went on to medical school because I needed a plan B, which worked out, you know, quite well for me and chose anesthesiology because I was always interested in pharmacology and physiology. And I'm not a very patient person. So the idea of things happening very rapidly really appealed to me. So I practiced anesthesiology in the operating room for over 20 years and then had a series of different things happen to me medically that took me out of the operating room. And in the meantime, I became super interested in what kind of treatment options there were for bendy people. And so I started to do lots and lots and lots of research, basically created my own kind of mini fellowship. And I've always been super interested in integrative approaches to different medical conditions. So addressing sleep issues and nutrition and things of that nature. So I realized after I was able to improve my quality of life really, really significantly that perhaps this approach would work with other people. And I had written a couple of articles that got a lot of attention and I had people emailing me and saying, where can I come see you? And initially I didn't have a place. So I ended up opening a clinic and then I live in the middle of nowhere and people, you know, the, the whole, if you build it, they will come kind of a thing. I built it and they came. So that was pretty exciting. I opened my clinic back in 2017 and then um, ended up actually more recently uh, switching the name of my clinic from Wisconsin Integrative Pain Specialist to Hypermobility MD to reflect the the broader nature of, of what I'm doing because I do have um, patients from a pretty diverse area. And the, um, the, the bendy part of this that I, I really want to work a lot with the population that's really underserved, like the dancers and other flexibility type artists and athletes. So I thought that's a good name for, you know, kind of attracting those, those kind of people that might not really want to go to a quote unquote pain clinic. Okay. So now it makes more sense going from anesthesiology, right? Because one of the fellowships for anesthesia, anesthesia is pain. So right. you you go from anesthesia to pain and then from pain to specifically working with pain in this subpopulation. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And and I had a pain practice when I first finished my residency, my anesthesia residency. I did do pain management for for a few years and then worked more strictly in the operating room for a while and then back to doing pain. So, yeah. 
Okay. Like, how, what are the logistics of setting up a practice that's not necessarily within your specialty? Or is this with all within your specialty? So, you know, because of the, the link with anesthesiology, I mean, I did do uh, quite a few rotations through, through the pain clinic and things like that as an anesthesia resident. So that's, that's a, just a part of your training. And yes, now there's much more fellowship training. And if you're going to do interventional pain, uh, pain management, then that's something that is definitely, you know, very uh, necessary, I believe, because of the fact that I was taking more of this integrative approach. And I, I do some procedures, but pretty minimal, um, mostly like trigger point injections and that kind of thing. Uh, through my career, of course, in the operating room, I did many, many procedures. I did lots of, you know, putting in lines and things and doing blocks for uh, post-op pain and or for the actual procedure. So say you're going to be doing sedation, but you're going to be doing an, an axillary block or an interscaling block or something like that. So it um, it was a very natural fit to, and of course, pain management is a part of what you're doing in anesthesia. It's just that you're doing more acute pain management, whereas now I do more chronic pain management. And, and, it, and it makes sense, right? It is, I, I just, I saw your practice more of like a musculoskeletal, like physiatry, like a, I would see oh, a physiatrist sure. is, is doing, but really if the focus is on pain, I think of fellowship as a relatively new phenomenon. In my field of ENT, there are plenty of ENTs that feel totally comfortable doing rhinoplasty without doing a fellowship. So, I, right. you know, I understand the focus is really pain, which is an extension of and part of anesthesiology. Right. The focus is pain in this subpopulation, not mobility and musculoskeletal injuries per se, right? You're not... Right. You're not doing physical therapy necessarily with these patients. No, no. I, I refer them to physical therapy very, yeah. very frequently. And I, especially now with the um, you know coronavirus ha- happening, I, I love it when I get a referral from a physical therapist because I often then will call them afterwards and discuss you know what their findings are. And, and that's a really nice compliment to what I'm doing. Um, and then I give them information that will help them, you know, move forward with the patients. So I, I really like working with physical therapists with this population because I feel like our skill sets are a very nice um, fit for each other. And I'm sure that makes for a great relationship. That was actually discussed on uh, my episode a few episodes ago with Andrew Tisser, where he, uh, you know, he had interviewed a bunch of different uh, of the allied health professionals and they all, as at the beginning of his podcast, and then he pivoted to a different theme, but they all said the same thing. Guys, call us more. Talk to us more. Right. Like, reach out to us more. Have conversations with us about these patients, and they're going to get better care. So, it sounds right. like that's that's happening a, a lot on your end. That's that's fantastic. Um, okay, so when we're dealing with this uh, population of people that have hypermobility, um, it's something that we definitely do learn about in medical school, right? I've heard of Ehlers-Danlos and Marfan syndrome, and I'm sure I've answered tons of multiple choice questions. Um, But if you had a med student rotating with you, this is where we get to like what every doctor should know about bendy bodies, whether it's hypermobility associated with the disorder or just more mobility than you would think, you know, most people have. So what would you want the big takeaways be being for a med student if you didn't know what that med student was going into? Maybe they're going to something that's completely unrelated, that's never going to refer you patients, but they're still going to have people that they meet in their community that might have questions for them. What do they need to know about bendy bodies? So uh, the first thing is that hypermobility disorders, which is the umbrella term that a lot of us use to, uh, that includes, yes, Marfan's, Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, um, you know, uh, osteogenesis imperfecta, other truly hereditary disorders of connective tissue, and then also the newer category, hypermobility spectrum disorders. But if we lump all of those together, we know that hypermobility disorders are absolutely not rare. They're rarely diagnosed, but they are not rare. So that's the first thing. And and it's one of those diagnoses that, that I believe that people should always have on their radar to just be keeping in mind, like, you know, if things don't seem to add up, then could hypermobility, symptomatic hypermobility, be part of what's going on here? There's a lot of psychologic and physical sequelae that happen because 
a lot of people go many, many, many years without being diagnosed. So the podcast that the first podcast I started was Hypermobility Happy Hour. And then the podcast I have now, Bendy Bodies, those have been actually widely popular. I get emails every single day from patients. I get them from physical therapists. I get them from um, physicians. I get messages all the time from people who either they say, you know, gosh, I'm, I see these people in my practice and I don't really know what to do, or I have this problem and everyone, you know, uh, just blows me off and I'm not getting the kind of care that I need. Where, where can I go? Who can I see? Um, so these, so that's the first thing is that hypermobility disorders, when we you know, have this uh, category, all of them together, they're not rare. So this is an important thing to have on your radar. Is this person hypermobile? Um, and I would add to that, you know, are they hypermobile like Gumby or are they hypermobile and loosey-goosey like Raggedy Ann? And those, for a lot of the younger people in the audience, I hope hopefully they'll know what those you know characters are. But <laughs> Gumby is the green thing that you know you can kind of bend into different shapes. And um, Stretch Armstrong, I, although uh, that's probably the same generation. Yeah, 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 it could be. And and Raggedy Ann is just floppy. I mean, I have patients that are you know 16 years old, and when you go to get them up to have them walk to do part of the physical exam, they just collapse. They don't have enough. Uh, muscular development, muscular strength to support their joints. And and their joints are so unstable that it requires more muscular strength. So it's really difficult for them to actually, you know, make any kind of progress. So, so that's the first thing is to just keep this on your radar. These conditions are not rare. The second thing is that these conditions occur on a spectrum. So all the way from someone who is the ballet dancer who is, uh, you know, super, super flexible and, you know, maybe has had a few injuries or uh, some issues with, you know, something taking a little bit longer to heal, but otherwise is doing great all the way to you know people who are who are very very um, significantly impacted and are basically bedridden and everything in between so it's important to keep in mind that um, you know just because somebody doesn't look like how you think they're going to look doesn't mean that they don't have one of these conditions I guess the next thing that I would mention is the it's important to know what the hallmarks are of these conditions so the joint hypermobility being one um, the other is weak tissues so you know get injured easily take a longer time to heal. We end up with things like um, you know, hernias or pelvic floor prolapse, things like that. And then the other thing is um, skin changes. So, you know, again, um, scar, scars that are, look abnormal and, and that kind of thing. And the last thing that I just want to mention is there are some very, very uh, common myths that surround hypermobility disorders. Um, oftentimes people think that if someone is bendy, that they must have a hypermobility disorder. And if someone is bendy, but doesn't have any symptoms whatsoever, then they have joint hypermobility, but they don't have a disorder. They don't have any symptoms. So, so that's the first myth. The second myth Sorry, is before that, we get past that yeah, first yeah. myth, let's make the distinction. Like what are the questions that we would ask to distinguish hypermobility from a hypermobility disorder? right? How do we, what are the, what are the signs? Like you mentioned wound healing. So if they have some strange scars, I would imagine like some, some of the patients have uh, fragility within the blood vessels. So maybe easy bruising. What are the, some of the other questions that we're going to ask? Yep. Those are some of the other things that you want to know. Some of the findings are things that you find like on an echo. Some of the things have to do with arachnodactyly. So, you know, having longer fingers and toes and, you know, the, some of the tests for that are, you know, where you wrap the fingers around the wrist or you close the hands and can the thumb, if you make a fist, does the thumb actually protrude past the fifth finger? That's another test that people do. And then also something called piezogenic papules. And when people are standing, you look, you, you actually have to like, I usually crawl on the floor to look at their heels for this. Um, but they're basically like kind of globules of fat that um, stick out through the skin of the heel, but the person needs to be weight-bearing. So they need to be standing. And then you really need to get down on the floor in order to be able to see that. So that's that's another thing that we see. So if um, your mobility is an issue, it makes that part of the physical exam yes. significantly more challenging. 
It, it definitely does. Yes, definitely. Um, and pain. Pain is a really, really huge problem with this population of people. So if they have higher pain sensitivity or have pain in more, more body parts, that's definitely a red flag to be thinking about this. And also if they have hyperalgesia or allodynia, I mean, of course, not everyone who has hyperalgesia or allodynia, meaning you are Hyperalgesia is when you are exposed to a stimulus and instead of having the expected level of pain, you have more pain. So that's hyperalgesia. You have a greater level of pain for the stimulus that was, you, know, you get, you know, somebody scratches your arm and it's like excruciatingly painful instead of just like, you know, it feels like a scratch. And then allodynia is when something that is normally not painful at all is painful. So the classic example is, you know, sheets touching your foot. Um, so People that have connective tissue disorders are at much greater risk of having sensitization of the nervous system and having hyperalgesia and allodynia. So what is myth number two? So myth number two is that in order to have hypermobility disorder, you must be bendy. And part of the challenge is that we, we lose our bendiness as we age, right? So part of the challenge is oftentimes we don't have symptoms when we're younger because we are able to heal our bodies more easily. As we get older and we don't heal as well, we start to have potentially you know, more pain, more problems, and but we're not bendy anymore or we're a lot less bendy than we used to be. So myth number two is that you have to be bendy in order to have a hypermobility disorder. You actually don't have to be bendy in order to have a hypermobility disorder. So I know that's actually probably kind of confusing. It's a contradiction. But, yes. Yeah, but you yeah. have to have been bendy at some point. Exactly. Right. Okay. You right. just don't have to be bendy right now. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And and there's a there's a questionnaire, the five point questionnaire by Dr. Sakim and Graham from 2003 that asks questions like when you were younger, did you amuse your friends by, you know, doing different tricks with your body and things like that? And then it asks a couple of the points from the scoring system that the Biden score, I don't know if people will have heard of that. No, let's assume no. Okay, let's assume no. So the Biden score is the most commonly used test in clinical practice for determining if someone has generalized joint hypermobility. But the problem with this test is that number one, it's biased towards the upper extremities because six of the nine points come from the upper extremities. And another problem was it was developed for research purposes not really for clinical use. And like I just said, by the time people get symptoms, oftentimes they don't have this ability to do these maneuvers. So um, for example, for me, the first rheumatologist that I went to, although actually I had been to a rheumatologist back when I was a teenager because I started getting joint pain when I was a teenager, but going to a rheumatologist as an adult, he did this test on me. And I don't remember what I scored, but it probably wasn't very impressive because I already had lost a lot of my mobility. I had already had multiple joint surgeries at that time. So that can make matters a lot more confusing if people are relying on that heavily. So I really like that five-point questionnaire because it takes some of the things from the Biden score from a historical perspective. You know, can you now or could you ever touch your thumb to your forearm? Um, and that's something that in the Biden score, you just have to be able to do it now. It doesn't, there's no historical component. No. <laughs> you can I, never do that. <laughs> I could never, no, I could never. These questions do not apply to me. I am hypomobile. Yeah, and, and that and that's some people are hypomobile and some people are hypermobile. And you can have hyper and hypo you can have some joints that are hypo and some that, that are hyper. So Nope. All of them <laughs> hypo. Okay. Yeah. So those are two myths. Are there any more myths that you there's you, one that you more want to myth. Okay. Yep. There's one more myth. So you actually can have um, a syndrome of joint hypermobility. So joint hypermobility is a feature of, you know, like think it's several hundred different genetic disorders. And you can have one of those genetic disorders and not have any symptoms. So that's, you know, just another important thing to be aware of when you are, you know, evaluating someone. You mean like if there's a genetic test and it comes back positive because there's varied penetrance, they might not manifest any type of a, any, any type of a symptom. Yeah. Either that, or they um, haven't developed any symptoms yet. Uh -huh. And, you know, maybe later on they would. Um, and I'm glad you brought up about testing because we can test for all the different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, except the most common type, the hypermobile type. We can test for the vascular type, the classical type, you know, all of the other types, but we don't have the molecular marker for all of the hypermobile 
population right now, the hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos population. Wow, interesting. Yeah. You would think that would be the first one that they'd find because they have the largest population pool, but I guess it doesn't, or may not even have. It might be uh, varied in its in its genetics as well, yeah, I, even though yeah, some I presentation think, is similar. Right. I think that's exactly what it is. So what we're thinking now is that these people that appear to have hypermobile EDS, they're phenotypically similar. You know, they look the same. They look like they have, or the same-ish. You know, uh, I had a patient tell me once, it's an owner-specific diagnosis. And I thought that was such a great way to put it because no two people are, I mean, we know that anyway in medicine, right? That no two people are identical, but it's really, really true of, of this population. And there's also a saying, if you've seen one person with EDS, you've seen one person with EDS. <laughs> you know, they're um, very, very, there's a lot of variance, I guess I should say. Yeah. But but once you start to recognize the pattern, then you definitely are able to recognize it more easily. And the thinking is that we are going to discover that there's several different genes involved, but that also there's other reasons why these groups of people are looking like they are have the same condition when probably they are actually you know, similar manifestations, but of different genetic, different genetic problems. Yeah. Let's get a little more granular, right? So that was, I think, what everyone should have knowledge of if they're a physician, because, you know, one of my uh, neighbors might have, uh, be stretching before we play basketball and I notice something and then, you know, a scar, maybe put two and two together and I might, or they might ask me a question. I might be able to point them in, in a direction they might not have even known to go. But Let's get more granular with what you think physicians that are going to see this more often should know, uh, that probably have a significant background in it, but there might be some subtle aspects uh, that you tend to have bought are at the forefront of your attention because you see it more. So like what orthopedic surgeons, neurologists, physiatrists, uh, rheumatologists, I, I would guess that these are the specialists, cardiologists. Uh, that are seeing these patients, but more specifically to the hypermobility issues, like the ones that you're going to see. I guess a cardiologist isn't necessarily going to be, nobody's going to be complaining to them that their shoulder hurts and, you know, show them how they take it out of their socket. But, you know, it's a very interesting question. And it's it's very interesting, actually, that you chose cardiology as one of the specialties because there is a a lot of overlap between hypermobility disorders and a couple of other conditions, one of which is dysautonomia. So dysautonomia being dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. Yes. And the most common condition that we see with people that have hypermobility disorders is um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS. POTS. Yep. yep. I am familiar with that because we see lots of dizziness in otolaryngology. Ah, yes. Right? So they come yes. to us. And because it's positional, right? Benign proxismal yep. positional vertigo. Classically, right. when you lie down and turn onto one side, you experience vertigo. And these patients experience it positionally, but not that position. Right. 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 You get it when they're standing up because then they're they're not getting as much blood flow to the brain. So they come in with this positional dizziness that some of them experience with vertigo, and they're referred to, they're put on meclizine and sent to see the otolaryngologist. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And even within cardiology, there are a, a lot of, there's a lot of cardiologists that will see these patients and, and work them up and do a tilt table test and, you know, start them on the appropriate regimen, which usually you start conservatively with, you know, more fluids and, and sodium in the diet. And it depends on their age too. So a lot of times when they're, if they are going through this process, it can happen more like in the teen years um, if they're having a growth spurt or something like that. But then over a period of time, there's a large percentage of people that um, where these symptoms will will lessen quite significantly. So it's not uncommon for people in the in the teenage years to complain of you know I if I stand up too quickly, then I get you know I get dizzy and then I get the, the curtains kind of coming in that kind of thing. But these people, that doesn't go away. It, it continues and persists. And actually part of the diagnosis for POTS is related to the heart rate change with um, going from uh, sitting to, st to standing or with the tilt table test. And when these symptoms have to be present though for at least six months, because the other thing is if we take anyone and we put them in bed for, you go to get them out of bed and they're going to have this problem. So if it, say someone has the flu or you know gets coronavirus, and they get you know bedridden or 
they're really sick for a little while, then they will definitely have this problem. So especially if they've had a febrile illness, because then it's really hard to keep up on your fluids. Or if you're doing a Dick's Hall Pike maneuver to someone where not only they're lying down, but their head is hyperextended. And then you sit them up. <laughs> they will experience dizziness because everybody does. So that right. is not a diagnosis. Again, sorry, this right. is just because this is all about me. Benign, <laughs> not benign proximal position. Okay, pot syndrome. Actually, this is definitely important for me to know. So would you happen to know what the management is aside from increased sodium intake and fluids? What could people do for that? So there are a number of other things that people can do for that. So there's a lot of things that you can do in terms of uh, building uh, muscular strength, especially in the lower extremities. That can really help. And especially like before people get out of bed in the morning, if you move your, especially your legs and do kind of some like, you know, pumping of the uh, you know, your quads and squeezing of your glutes and things like that before you get up, that can help to at least improve, you know, kind of some venous return back up to the heart. And at least, you know, we know that veins don't have valves in them. So whatever we can do to help improve blood flow, because that's the other thing that that I think is part of the problem is when people have a connective tissue disorder or hypermobility spectrum disorder, and um, it's very common to get deconditioned. We often will get injured doing very, very simple things. So we often get kinesiophobia, which is fear of movement. And so you kind of fall down the EDS hole or the EDS spiral. And we want to start to recondition the body, build up some muscle. Sometimes compression stockings can help improve that venous return. Um, we do want to make a distinction if it's hyperadrenergic or not, um, because the treatment of that would be different. Clonidine is a drug that's often used for that. So sometimes we'll actually draw, I don't do this, but a cardiologist will do this or neurologist. POTS is one of those disorders that can be treated by either of those populations, but those are the ones that are most frequently handling these patients on a you know, uh, more intense management basis. So some of the drugs that are used include the, uh, like I said, clonidine, beta blockers are quite commonly prescribed. And I'm trying to think what else. Um, I would oh, think you wouldn't want to block your betas. I would think that would be... Right. Very low dose beta blockers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very low. You wouldn't think you'd want to block your betas. Yeah. <laughs> I remember hearing an attending say that and I thought it sounded so cool. Yeah. No, that is that that is good. And uh, midodrin is another uh, very, yeah. very common drug that's used. And Flornef. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So pod syndrome, definitely something to to look out for in this population. What about other, or rather if someone has pod syndrome, consider working them up for a hypermobility disorder. Yes. Um, yes. So what about thing, other things that you would want these specialists who, who might be seeing these patients to know about those patients? So the other disorder that occurs quite commonly with these patients is called mast cell activation syndrome. And we know that um, a lot of us think of allergies as being, you know, more related to histamine and being a pretty, you know, clear-cut type of um, problem. And we might have learned about mastocytosis. I know I definitely learned about mastocytosis in, in medical school, learned that it was very rare. And this is not this is not mastocytosis. It's not an abnormal number of mast cells. It's an abnormal activation of mast cells. Hmm. And so we know that mast cells have, you know, hundreds of different mediators inside of them. And so it's not just histamine, it's histamine and tryptase and heparin. And each one of these mediators can have effects all through the body. So I had a visit with a patient yesterday. And one of the things that she told me that I've been treating her for a while now, but she said that she has been told by other doctors when she was describing her symptoms, quote, that's not possible close quote. And that's so devastating to a patient. Yeah, that's always it, discouraging. Yeah. And the best thing you can do for these patients is to believe them because these mast cell activation syndromes are very, very um, challenging. I mean, these people, they really suffer. They suffer these kind of bizarre symptoms that, you know, again, I think had I not started this practice and, and seen you know, the population that I do, I mean, I can see where a lot of people would think, okay, this just does not make sense to me. It's not anything that I learned about in medicine and it doesn't make sense to me scientifically. So therefore it must not exist. And because again, because mast cells have so many different mediators, you can get some really unusual symptoms. And I've had some 
amazing results with people who I had, I had this one patient who mom actually came to one of my talks and mom came up to me afterwards and said, do you think you can help my daughter? And she's describing this seizure type activity. And I said, you know, I don't know, but I'd be happy to try. And so, you know, they brought her in to see me and I was looking over the records and she was diagnosed with psychogenic non-epileptiform seizure disorder. And she would have these just, you know, kind of random episodes of abnormal, um, you know, muscle activity. And then she'd be just exhausted afterwards. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if I treat this like a mast cell activation disorder syndrome. And so I put her on antihistamines. I put her on some mast mast cell stabilizing drugs that we frequently use. And some of those are actually just supplements, but she not, came back. Not Montelukast? Well, that would, be a, that would be a possibility, but I did not prescribe that for her mm-hmm. initially. That's just and immediately where my brain goes in terms sure. of mass cells. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, definitely, that's definitely a drug that we do use. And she came back a month later and, you know, asked her, how are you doing? And she said, I haven't had a single episode since I saw you. And I don't know, I probably, my mouth is probably gaping open like, really, it actually worked? You know, you don't really know until you start treating people and, and you know, trying these things. I'd They're probably n- start to cry. Yeah. That's I, how my office visit would go. Yeah. Because, you pretty, know, you realize what an impact that that has made on their entire existence. Yes. Yes. I mean, she she was really, really devastated with all of this. I mean, she yeah. had learned how to drive. She wanted to go to college. And, you know, here she she had to stop driving. Yeah, she and, saw her life taken away from her. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and they had done all, they had done this hugely expensive workup, including, you know, a, you know, MR angiogram of the brain. And they had her in the hospital for like three days under, you know, a video EEG uh, program. And so, and then, and then to get this diagnosis, I've had other patients come to me with a diagnosis of conversion disorder. And, you know, I've had patients that come in a wheelchair that are now walking. So it's, you know, I I guess the big thing is give them the benefit of the doubt. And it may not make sense to you, but if they're saying that they feel it, like believe them, obviously we know patients do sometimes lie. We know that that does happen, but that's by far the exception, not the rule. And until they've proven themselves to be untrustworthy, I think they should be believed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I guess in this situation, when you heard hoofbeats, look for uh, look for the zebra. <laughs> um, because it sounds like there is no necessarily horse for, for what this presented, you know, for, for these symptoms. And I'm not totally clear on what the symptoms are, actually. What is it that we're looking for for this diagnosis? Right. So if you're talking about, um, you know, the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and hypermobility spectrum disorders, or I should say hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders. So I should just clarify in 2017, the International Consortium on um, Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and related disorders, they reclassified hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, actually, and the other Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, because they wanted to be able to find the genetic marker for hypermobile EDS. And in order to do that, they made the criteria much more strict. And they knew that when they did that, they would be excluding a lot of people that you know still fall into the category of having some kind of hypermobility syndrome. So they created this hypermobility spectrum disorder category for people who you know have uh, symptomatic hypermobility, but they don't meet the really strict criteria that are, now exist for hypermobile EDS. So, um, so it, anyway, if you so those two are very closely related: hypermobile EDS and hypermobility spectrum disorder. And amongst those, I'd say the most common symptoms are pain. GI symptoms are quite common. That's very very common. They, uh, you know, again sometimes have issues with healing. We know about the dysautonomia, the mast cell activation stuff. They'll have more a higher incidence of like allergies and asthma, of course, population that you see. Wait, so sorry, the mast cell degranulation. What are the, because I'm a little confused about how this patient was told that she had seizures and it ultimately was mast cell um, degranulation. She responded anyway to the mast cell, to treating the mast cell. Well, no, yeah. but what were her symptoms or the typical symptoms of that. I mean, you're saying allergies and asthma, but how would it present in ways that we wouldn't know that it's 
like where the patients wouldn't end up on those medications anyway. Even if we thought, well, this is asthma or this is allergies, right? Because the symptoms are overlapping and therefore treating them as asthma or allergies with those medications, which are going to help. How is it that they ended up with conversion disorder and seizure disorder as these diagnoses? Like what are the presentations that might be less. So the other thing that, that because people have weak connective tissue, they're going to present with things like uh, dislocations and subluxations. I'm sure everyone knows what a dislocation is, but a subluxation, meaning that the joint is not in proper alignment, but the bones are, have not completely lost contact with each other. So for example, this patient that I saw, she already had a diagnosis of EDS and she already had a diagnosis of POTS. They just, you know, nobody had thought to treat this abnormal muscular activity that she had, she would get kind of like a predromal, just feeling like something wasn't quite right, kind of feeling a little very, very common for, for these people to have brain fog. That's a super mm. common complaint amongst people that have POTS. And so she would get kind of a severe worsening of, of that before she would have this like muscle twitching type activity that lasted for anywhere between, you know, 30 and 90 seconds. And she would get sometimes, you know, 10 episodes a day and other times go several days without having this. And then she would just be extremely fatigued after this happened. And a lot of these people too would be this, the person that you see, like for me as an anesthesiologist, people would come in and they would have a list of like 20 different drugs that they were quote unquote allergic to. Mm. And on that list might be like something like epinephrine. You know, yeah. I now know that that's because a lot of people with mast cell activation syndrome, they have sensitivity to the inactive ingredients in drugs or the excipients. So they will have these, you know, what sound like kind of bizarre reactions to a lot of different medications, but it's because their mast cells are so like trigger happy. So it just takes very little for them to uh, react that way. Interesting. Interesting. I think now we'll move on to the case presentation portion, um, unless there's <laughs> anything else that you want to mention that you think that our, our other special, our allied specialists should, should be aware of. There's one other thing that I want to mention, and that's regarding opioids, just because, you know, since I practice pain management, of course, that's, that's always, you know, a concern. And of course, it's really an issue right now in our, in our society. And in this population of patients, long-term opioids is really rarely appropriate, but there are certain limited circumstances in which it is. So if somebody has very, very severely impacted, I mean, people can have instability of their cervical spine, for example, and end up having you know, uh, surgery for that and have maybe they have a Chiari malformation, basically herniation of their brainstem into the um, foramen magnum. And, you know, that can be a varying degrees, of course, but people can end up with some very, very severe complications from this. And, and then that's kind of a last ditch drug for me, as far as my practice goes, I try a lot of other things before that, but I think it's important to avoid black and white thinking that like, those are always bad or always good. In this population, they're rarely appropriate, but sometimes it is appropriate to either prescribe a small amount to be used if they have a dislocation or a subluxation so that they have it available. Um, but they, because opioids cause mast cell activation, they're usually not the right drug for this population. Good to know. So we're not, we're not using opioids for anybody anymore. No, but we also, I, you know... <laughs> Um, we stopped using them for, for actually pediatric tonsillectomy uh, a while ago and, every, and and switched it for ibuprofen and actually everybody's been doing much and better. And they're doing okay with that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've actually started using, stopped using it for, except on rare occasions, septoplasties and sinus surgery. I used to give no, you know, no, no NSAIDs. Uh, they'd only use opioids if they needed, but now I'm going back to ibuprofen and everybody's doing fine. So yeah, it's uh, you know, our, our, we're moving in the other direction. I was I was in med school for the whole you know fifth sign. Uh, you're all, <laughs> every doctor is insensitive to their patients' needs. You're all callous. You're all terrible people. And right. You all should be taking their pain much more seriously than you are and prescribing lots of opioids. Right. That was right. in the curriculum at the time, and now you know the needle's swinging in the other direction. So it yeah, sounds like I, this as well. And I think in some instances, it's almost swung too far in the other direction. I guess I see people sometimes that that have surgeries and 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 don't get prescribed anything and they have a lot of pain afterwards. So I guess it depends on this on the circumstances. It's fantastic if you have 
um, you know, ways that you that you manage patients that they that they don't need them. That's the best thing. I mean, that's the best of all worlds. But I do think that sometimes we are almost so afraid of prescribing opioids that yeah. we're holding them when it would be appropriate to prescribe them. I mean, like people having total joint replacements. At least these are some of the stories. These are some of the things that I hear from my patients. So, oh yeah, for my adult tonsillectomies. Acupuncture is not working. They need right, right. opioids. It is exactly yeah. brutal. Right. Okay, so yes. now now to the case presentation portion of the interview. <laughs> and and to keep his anonymity, I will just tell you that this is one of my sons, since I have three. <laughs> uh, I will not tell you which one. Okay. So uh, he is ridiculously flexible. Like, you know, since since birth. When he takes his shirt off, he pulls it up over his head and then puts his arms straight back, like parallel to the ground and parallel to each other in order to get it over his arms. Like he just goes straight back and then down to like push the shirt off his arms. Mm. And, you know, all of his mobile, we can, you know, sometimes some clicking and his knees. We brought up to the pediatrician. They don't seem concerned. He doesn't have any pain. His strength is actually quite ridiculous. He's been able to do a pull-up since he's two years old. We just, you know, have that stuff around in the house. I have gymnastic rings and pull-up bars. And so <laughs> he loves playing on, on all that stuff. He's, I don't know where he gets his athleticism from, certainly not from me. So I'm not worried about his strength, but how do I know that it's, it is or it isn't, if it's just hypermobility or a sign of a hypermobility disorder? No issues with scarring. Actually, he did have an epigastric hernia, but so did his, one of his brothers, it's an unusual hernia that I'd actually never heard of, but they, you know, it's, it's a, a little midline defect. So really, you know, no other scarring, no issues with bruising. He is, you know, a typical boy throwing himself off of things he shouldn't be and whatnot. <laughs> so what do I, what do I look for? How do I know if it's just hypermobility? And then also how do I help him to harness it and at the same time protect against future injuries and future arthritis. Right, right. So is his skin, would you say his skin is uh, more elastic than what you, it, you know, it's harder when they're young, their skin is, you know, fairly, but it, would you say his skin is particularly stretchy? No, actually that's one of his brothers who is not so flexible, has more of the stretchy skin. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But no, not, not stretchy. Sure. Sure. I think it's super important to think about, right, how do we avoid, how we avoid injuries. So prioritizing strength and control is really important and all throughout the range of motion. So, you know, if you think about, you know, watching people at the gym who might be doing something using momentum rather than control to, to lift weights, that's, that's not what we want to do. We want to do more, you know, slow, slow movements of, with strength training so that throughout the entire range of motion, they're developing that control and your son, I, I believe, is young. So yeah, oh, I know yeah. that, that that this isn't necessarily. I'm giving kind All of all three of them gym. are under five. So. Okay, <laughs> you got a full house. We do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, these are more kind of also applying to a, you know a broader range of uh, yeah. people as well. It's hard when they're, when you're young to when they're that young to advise them on that kind of a thing. You um, know, it's interesting that you say that because with with CrossFit, right? One of the things that they do there is a muscle up where you basically go from a pull up and then you push yourself up on the bar. Like you get yourself over the bar and then you push yourself up. And what they have people do is they have people swing into it. They call it uh, kipping, but you're basically swinging into it. So you're swinging yourself such that you're above the bar. And I, I, I would think that you, if you're going to do that, I think that could be fine as long as you have the control to also do it without swinging. Right. Right. So by right. using momentum, you're putting yourself at higher risk for injury where it's not necessarily a bad thing, but make sure you can do it without the momentum first. Right, right. Because I mean, if you're training in training, it's good to do some plyometric type activities. That's a good idea. But for protecting your joints, you know, you, you don't want to be doing, you know, herky-jerky type movements. You want to be doing, you want to really make sure that you are, you know, having the joint in proper alignment and that kind of things. As you're describing how he's taking off his shirt, I'm thinking about how I realized, oh gosh, I had to be in my 40s when I realized that my entire life, I basically had been like dislocating my shoulders to take off like really, really tight clothing, you know, you just don't, you just don't think anything of it. You just do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And and part of the challenge with hypermobility disorders is, you know, we each only know what our own body feels like. Yeah. So it's the easiest way to do it. So you're going to take the path of least resistance. Right. Right. 
lots and lots of dancers, particularly, you know, they'll they'll do these things where they're either overstretching or they'll be going into the hypermobile, you know, range, you know, in part because it's aesthetically it's it's advantageous, but you know, we want to avoid that as much as possible. So if I can catch somebody as young, like as your son is, I definitely, you know, without trying to make them, um, you know, overly worried about it or anything, you know, you want to try to avoid going into that hypermobile range. So maybe teaching him a different way to take his shirt off or keeping an eye on that and seeing, well, when does it Pull your arms out first, like most people do, and then push it over your head? right. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Kind of looking to see when is he doing things that look like he might be putting extra strain on the joints that really, you know, on the ligaments, you yeah. know, th- this is potentially going to catch up with him when, you know, when he gets older. And part of what I love about having the Bendy Bodies podcast is I get to talk to an incredible array of people and um, it, we have, we're going to be publishing this episode very soon, but we spoke with a principal dancer of a, of a pretty big company, and she was sharing with us, um, with me and my co-host Jennifer Milner, about how she really had to learn how to control her hypermobility. And in the beginning, she was just kind of using it and kind of leaning into it and relying on it. She had to learn that instead of doing that, she had to really control it and learn to be more in tune with the position of her joints and things, because that's the other thing that's kind of a little counterintuitive because at the same time that people can have a sensitized nervous system and have more pain, they also can have poor proprioception. So people that are hypermobile often don't even know that they're, you know, bending their arm, you know, uh, past, you know, straight. Right. Because it's going, they're taking it like when I straighten my arm, I straighten it as far as I can and I'm totally comfortable. They're straightening it as far as they can, and it's totally right. comfortable, not realizing they're hyperextending. Right, not yeah. realizing they're hyperextending it and putting strain on ligaments and tendons that are really not meant to go in that direction. And unfortunately, by the time people have pain, oftentimes it's, you know, it, it would have been much better to deal with it before that, you know. Yeah, and, it's, and, and what is it? An ounce of prevention is uh, worth a pound of cure. Yes, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So things like Pilates are very, very beneficial. Things like exercising in a pool is fantastic because when you exercise in water, you have the the contact of the water with the skin helps with proprioception. And you can also exercise your muscles in a way that is works the muscles, but it's easier on the joints. I often recommend that people um, exercise in a pool. And you know some of the other recommendations that I give to dancers who maybe are not really having any particular problem yet, but they are at risk that to be aware of things like overuse injuries. So I have one dancer patient who was, um, her studio was kind of showcasing her in this uh, certain role that she had. And she did the same variation again and again and again in a whole bunch of different performances rather than it used to be like it back when I was dancing and I was never as good as she was. She was, she was a pre-professional dancer. She now had to um, retire because of her Ehlers-Danlos. She does have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. But back when I was dancing, you know, we, we took tons of classes and then we would perform every so often. And now I feel like there's a lot more performing going on. So they're practicing the same thing again and again and again, and there's less of the technique classes where, you know, you're doing some of the maybe more boring things or, you know, working on really perfecting your technique that you know, is going to be protective for you. Well, so you're not going to be able to throw that up on Instagram. <laughs> right. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's where we are, right? So yeah, yeah. Makes, that, that makes sense. Back to basics to make sure you're protecting your joints. Yeah. Right. And it's also really challenging if you're a studio owner your client is the dancer and their parents. And I've, I've talked to lots of studio owners. I've talked to lots of dance parents. And sometimes if the studio owner says, no, you know what, I'm going to take away their point shoes or I'm going to let them keep their point shoes, but I'm not going to actually let them go up on point because that other studio put them up on point too soon. Well, sometimes the parents will pull their kid oh, yeah. out of that studio. So the studio owner is kind of stuck. Yeah. It's, it's challenging. Well, that's what it's, I think happened with CrossFit was like, I know you've never been able to do a pull-up before, but we're going to teach you to do a pull-up because we're going to show you how to swing into it. And now you have a bunch of people that have never been able to do a pull-up in their whole life, and yet now they can because they're swinging into it. Um, yeah. But that's putting them at high risk for injury. So it's a marketing strategy for them 
that helps to build their brand and their business. It's, you know, it's a, it's a calculated decision. There might be the benefit, though, to this as someone who wouldn't have stuck with exercise. Now, they are because they have this positive reinforcement of now they can do this thing that they've never been able to do before. So I, I can I can see both sides, but yeah, safety. We're we're you know we're we're more, going to be more concerned about safety than you know you might be able to rationalize though the other side. Like, well, I'm going to let them do this, but because it's I will keep a closer eye on them than other else might. Then then it's okay. So that's how we and, and I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great point about CrossFit. And when even when you brought it up earlier, I didn't even think about right that they that they're getting the buy-in from people maybe that way, which is great that they are exercising. But I think the other thing that I think is so incredibly important because yes, I want people to exercise as much as they possibly can. But the other thing that I think that we as a society need to remember is listen to your body. <laughs> you know, um, I, I cannot believe how often people will say, well, you know, it hurts when I do X, Y, Z, you know, the whole joke about, well, then stop doing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I went to the doctor and it hurts when I do this. He said, Don't yeah. do this. Yeah. 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 So I think that, that we need to be before we get this terrible injury or end up with having, you know, something we, where we can't, can't go back. We, we are not able to get the tissues to heal, you know, um, it's appropriate to to listen to our bodies, and especially since in like something like dance, overuse injuries are much more common than than acute, you know, traumatic type injuries. So it's it's just important to be aware of these things. And you know, is this getting worse? Is it getting better? You know, what can I possibly modify? Because the other thing that's important is active rest. You don't have to quit completely. Perhaps you can just modify things somewhat to allow those tissues to heal give it more time than you're probably giving it. And I think that's right. where a lot of the benefit of the physical therapy comes in too, is just, it's reinforcing, no, don't go back to what you were doing before. Give it more time. Let's get back to basics and and build it up from uh, from the ground up. Right, right. Because there's a big difference between, you know, uh, DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. Like, I mean, that can really hurt a lot, but that's that's a good sensation usually, and that generally means that you're making muscles stronger. So that's that's a good thing, versus pain in a joint or you know pain in a, in a where you know a tendon in, inserts you know or something that you know Achilles tendinopathy for example. You know, you you, you want to pay attention to that. Yes, <laughs> especially if you've been on a quinolone recently. Right. Oh, that that actually is another thing that I'm so glad you brought that up. In in general, we avoid fluoroquinolones in this population because their connective tissue is weak already. So the last thing they need is something that's you know potentially going to make it uh, you know weaker. But if they've got a raging otitis externa and it's not responding to drops, it's either that or IV zosin. So we might not have a choice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's weighing, you know, I mean, like, w- yeah. that's what we do in medicine, or put a right? Pick we- line. Yeah. All right. So second case presentation. <laughs> and I have permission. This is my wife, right? She's actually, she's very tall. She's three inches taller than me. Sitting down, I'm taller than her. When we stand up, she's taller than me. She is much taller than her siblings. She's much taller than her mom. And all of that is in her very long, lovely legs. She also has long fingers and long toes. And she's flexible, so I'm sure that's where my son gets it from. But she also has a tendency to scar easily. So I remember she's got this one scar on the back of her arm from like reaching over a chain link fence and getting scratched. It didn't seem like that much at a time, but now it's, you know, it's it's not a keloid. And it's barely even a hypertrophic scar, but it's definitely visible. I mean, maybe because she has... She has darker skin. I'm not sure, but you know, those are the those are the things that made me when she was pregnant with our first son say to her OBGYN, "Does she need to get an echo? I'm I'm worried she might have like Marfan syndrome or or something." You know, I didn't. I still don't. You know, this isn't my specialty. I'm sure I answered a question on a board exam at some point. But uh, is, is anything that I'm telling you sound like it could potentially be uh, hypermobility? connective tissue disorder. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned about, you know, her body habitus because there is that, uh, you know, ectomorphic body habitus does tend to be more common, but it's not always the case. But, you know, in terms of criteria for Marfans, you know, I mean, it's, 
based on what you've described to me, if that was my patient, I mean, I probably would get a baseline echo just to make sure that the aortic root looks okay. And I, you know, I don't know if what her wingspan is, but that's the other thing is, you know, checking the wingspan versus the height. And, you know, there's there's new mutations. So just because somebody does not have a family history definitely does not mean that, you know, that they can't have um, a hypermobility disorder or a hereditary disorder of connective tissue. There, I actually know of a family where very, very uh, tragically, the uh, a young lady died at age 15 of vascular Ehlers-Danlos and vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And there are multiple other family members that appear to have like hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos. So they've been tested for vascular. It was my understanding. Um, this the, They're not my patients. I've met them elsewhere, but they, at a fundraiser, and a lot of them were sharing their story with me. So it the whole thing is really quite complex um, because, you know, it's th- that person, the, the one who passed away, had a vascular fragility, you know, uh, gene, you know, and also had the hypermobility, but the other people in the family like have the hypermobility, but not the vascular fragility. So. Oh, so that must have been a new mutation. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, is there anything else that you think bears discussing or bears repeating that you think either every physician or referring physicians should know about hypermobility disorders? I think probably the most important thing is that, you know, in our society, we kind of, I think, tend to idolize people who like don't feel pain and, oh, wow, look how, look how brave they are or whatever. And the, the more patients that I see that have these connective tissue disorders and as, as they um, experience different things, a lot of them, they, they just, they really suffer so much. And it's just amazing to me how brave and strong they actually are. So rather than idolizing people who don't feel pain, I feel like these people who truly have all of these sensations going on in their body yet persevere anyway and you know, uh, continue to, to get up out of bed in the morning and, you know, try to do their best and really uh, try to function as well as they possibly can. I think it's really amazing. I It's so inspirational to take care of these people because they are truly, truly remarkable. They really are. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like overcoming fear is bravery. Absence yeah. of fear is stupidity. Right. So it's the exactly. same thing with, with pain. The, the, yeah. They're able to overcome it is something to be appreciated. Yeah. And revered. Yeah, exactly. So where can people find you online? Where can people find your podcast? And where can people find your practice? So the hypermobilitymd.com website is where, you know, pretty much everything is housed. So from there, there's a medical services page that that people can access. And I, I'm located in Wisconsin, so I can see patients that reside in the state of Wisconsin. Right now, because of coronavirus, there's a little bit of changes to the rules. It used to be that you had to fly to Wisconsin to see me in order because the first visit had to be in person. But now it's a little bit different. And I do actually at the present time, I, I do have an emergency Georgia license, so I can also treat patients that are in Georgia. How did um, that happen? I have- Wisconsin and Georgia. I know. I know. I I have a couple of very, very dear friends that are physical therapists for the Atlanta Ballet. I was talking to them and they said, we really need you in Atlanta. And my son actually just graduated from Georgia Tech with his master's degree. And so I've spent a little bit of time in Atlanta. And yeah, I know Georgia seems like kind of a, well, why would you? And I have family there too. We're expanding from Wisconsin to Georgia. From Wisconsin to Georgia, yeah. So I, I looked it up and I found that, yes, you could get an emergency license. A lot of the states... I don't know who else is going to listen to this podcast, but if you have any ability to influence this, anyone who's listening, please make it easier for those of us who want to help people from different states to figure out if we can or can't, you know, right now with COVID, because it's really quite confusing. Some states make it pretty clear what you can and can't do, and others, it's there's so much uh, legal jargon in there that it's really quite challenging. But Georgia was great. Like, they, it was clear where the application was, and then they've extended the date of the emergency and stuff like that. So it's, it, they've been really good to deal with. You hear that, mom, and the other person listening to the show? <laughs> All right. Well, I really appreciate your time uh, and your expertise. So this has been great. And for the, for the consults, not medical advice, appreciated, but uh, you know, no, not legally binding. We're not uh, in a doctor-patient relationship, but uh, 
but this was this was fantastic. I really learned a lot, a lot that I can apply to my practice, especially with the pot syndrome and to my everyday life. So it, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been great to chat with you. And I, I really enjoy your podcast a lot. So I'm I'm super excited that that you had me on as a guest. So I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.